Gabby Felcher. Welcome to Crompeha Short Stories and Poetry for October 6, 2023. Hello, my name's Terence O'Donnell, and I'm here with some more stories for everyone this week. This once-a-week podcast is being hosted on rss.com and is also available on these mobile apps and websites, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. Now, my shows are free to subscribe to for now on these podcast platforms. But I do have a donations tab on the RSS.com webpage where I post the episodes to support the show, much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. A little about me. I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Sean Kay, an Irish storyteller. I want listeners to imagine we're sitting together under the village oak tree, Crown Biha, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life. While gathered here, I will read to you fictional stories of poetry from writers I found from around the world in Medium.com, with their permission, including some of my own stories on occasion. In order to read the accompanying newsletters in Medium.com or Substack.com, you will need to either sign up for a subscription in Medium or a free subscription in Substack.com. I offer the newsletter for free the first month in Substack, then you get paywalled afterwards. If you want to read any of the newsletters and listen to the podcast without signing up for anything, you can also find everything in the blog section of my website at www.crombiha.com. I try to pick out stories and poems that will hopefully stay with you for a bit after we've parted for the day and leave you wanting more so we return again next week. So I have five stories for you, all short stories, two of which are a part one and part two. Now they range from children's fantasy to a scary stuff leading up to Samhain. My first story is called Sorcerer Daycare from J Jonathan Sawyer. And he published this in the Kraken Lore. Sorcerer Daycare, a TKL mashup response by Jonathan Sawyer. His story adventure is inspired by Monday mashup number 30 and dedicated to anyone taking care of the younglings. Bruce squinted hard and wiped his drenched brow in the hot summer sun. He had, perhaps too hastily, agreed to forego the usual two-year moratorium on joining the Knights Academy in favor of a six-week internship program at the Kingdom's Royal College. Specifically, he had drawn the dreaded sorcerer's daycare. Diego, stop eating the chalk. That's for drawing your runes, he scolded one of the children, gnawing on his white piece of chalk. Diego powdered at Bruce and threw the chalk onto the ground, which immediately caught fire, landed like a melted marshmallow as it hit the cobblestones. Another young spellcaster, a tiny halfling sorceress named Gilda, slapped a warm potion vial into his hand. Please drink this, Master Bruce. I brewed it especially for you. Her giggle at the end was both adorable and frightening. Her innocence was matched only by her alchemy skills, so with a shrug, he popped the cork and guzzled down the tiny elixir. It tasted like ash, then seaweed, then like burning hot magma. Bruce turned to spit out the last of it from his mouth, but accidentally ignited a nearby shrub. Bruce bolted towards the pool and jumped in, ignoring the line for the diving board in the far corner, taking in gulps of water in doing so. His charges all roared with laughter at the sight of their senior all soaking wet. As he climbed out of the pool, the laughter was silenced as he cast a spell on the kids, sealing their lips shut. Gilda ran up to him, 
yelling muffled words that he couldn't comprehend. She grasped a silver amulet around her neck, and the illusion he created was dispelled. Clever girl. Master Bruce, Gilda out of breath, merely pointed towards Diego and some other charges as they lobbed flaming goop through the air, the fist-sized globules exploding as they touched the cobbles, glass, and anything else. He reached for his magic whistle around his neck and blew it, freezing the spellcasters in place for a few seconds. The whistle disintegrated into dust, its magic used up. As the spell effect faded, the children all fell to the ground, momentarily stunned. Gilda ran over to Diego and gave his face a mighty slap. That's for ruining my love potion to deliver you, you goon. She took off in the direction of the cafeteria with streams of tears running down her cheeks. Bruce turned to Diego sternly. What did you do to her potion? I just added a little dragon slang for fun, he answered, rubbing his red cheek. She's always got to take everything so serious. Dragon's flame. You could have killed someone, Bruce exclaimed. Least of all me. Bruce asked another wizardly intern to take over his students while he raced to the cafeteria after Gilda. As he neared the doors, he could hear her small voice recounting the events to her familiar, a small kitten homunculus she had created. The patchwork cat listened intently as it sat. And then Diego and his friends began throwing fiery goop bombs all over the place, probably dispelling whatever magic was left of the potion. Oh, cat, I'm so cursed in love. Master Bruce is never going to fall for me now. Check out the continuation of Gilda's story here. So, again, this is part one, and this is a three-part story. But I'm only going to give you part one this week. You'll have to wait till next week to, to let me give you part two. My next story is called The Kitchen Maid's Trickery by Amy Potter. Once upon a road that led to a castle tower, an older king and an older woman married for convenience. Theirs was an arranged marriage. But they soon fell in love as they conversed with each other and realized that they were more of the same mind on so many things. Unfortunately, it was not long before the king went away to the summer battlefields. His wife rode him through the household steward. She missed him terribly. The king could not write, and he did not want his queen to know, so the steward read pretend letters to her. Now, before the marriage, a kitchen maid had become pregnant by the king. She was just beginning to show, but she made sure everyone knew her child belonged to the king. The new queen had pity upon the maid and left her there in the kitchen instead of banishing her, as she would have every right to do. However, in order to cause trouble, the conniving, jealous kitchen maid got a message to her master, the king, that his wife was cheating on him with the steward. When the king returned, he immediately put his steward to death and imprisoned his wife in the tower. As you know, towers are the strongholds of castle defense. The tower projected above and out from the wall, and this gave the archers a clear view down and sideways. Walkways ran along curtain walls, so crossbowmen and archers could swiftly move to quell the danger. They posted a watch on the tower turret to keep a lookout along the base of the castle walls. Soon the king asked for a decree of divorce. Once the queen finally discovered what had happened, she refused. She would not sign a lie. So she remained in the tower, and she soon learned that no matter where the body is, the mind is free to go elsewhere. Meanwhile, the kitchen maid had the king's baby, a child born on the wrong side of the blanket, and she brought it to the older woman in the tower to see. The maid did this in order to anger the woman and make her jealous. Now the queen knew she had an appointment with death, and that the ring of protection she wore was the only thing between her and her demise. 
She remembered an old legend she had heard about a servant in Baghdad who saw death in the marketplace. Death made a threatening gesture, and the servant ran to his master and asked to borrow a horse to speed to Samaria, where he would hide from death. Later, his master saw death and asked him why he had threatened the servant. I did not, Death replied. It only surprised me to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in Samaria. While looking at the baby, the queen took off the ring of protection and gave it to the girl child. When she slipped a large ring on her finger, it resized itself to, the, to a small baby-sized ring. The ring of protection was now gone. When the kitchen maid suggested not feeding the queen in the tower, the king agreed. The plan was that the woman would get so hungry that she would allow the king to divorce her. However, she died in the tower, the lingering, terrible death of starvation. Once his queen was gone, the king realized what kind of woman the kitchen maid really was. He solely regretted his haste in believing his wife had been adulterous. He was still too kind-hearted to take their lives, so he sent the maid and his child away to the village, and he was never happy again. So there's a story for you that kind of makes you think a little bit. My next story is a part one. It's entitled Field Trip, A Lesson to the Past from the Future. It's a science fiction story by Martin Morrison in England. He published this in Bounce and Behave and Short Stories. The high-speed shuttle came to an abrupt but safe stop, and everyone felt their guts moving in the way they do when you drive over the Brava Hill too quickly. Before I open this, let me be absolutely clear about something. There's a reason we don't do these field trips very often. Out there, and he pointed to the rear of the carriage where the exit hatch was situated, is dangerous. The hum of private conversations simmered down, and silence enveloped the space as all eyes and ears focused on Mr. Kasowski. It's a life-threatening environment. Students have died on these trips. You do not touch anything or wander away from the group. Our route is carefully planned out, and if even a deviation of just a few meters could get you killed. Am I clear? Yeah, man. Ed oozed from the corner seat before anyone else got a chance. Kasowski cut in. Ed, are you high? Sorry, Mr. Kasowski. Ed smiled sheepishly, as he did in any situation where he needed to get out a free jail card. You've all seen the videos, continued the form tutor, addressing the rest of the group. Did we spell it out in plain English? Do not consume alcohol or any psychoactive substances before the field trip. He turned his attention to Ed, whose mind was clearly drifting. Ed, yes, you. You're going to have to stick to me like glue. Do you understand? It's too late to take you back. We only have a short window. Ed nodded in agreement, but I'm not sure he knew what he was signing up to. Ms. Williams, I'm going to need you to be even more vigilant with the rest of the party, okay? Mrs. Williams looked over at Jed, whom everyone called Beefy, down to his Adonisk physique. Jed was also breathtakingly handsome and looked much more manly than the rest of us, and he was often mistaken for a lecturer. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on you, Jed, cooed Mrs. Williams, hardly able to hide the fact that she was attracted to him. There were a few groans and ooh from some of the party. That's fine by me, Kristen, Jed jousted, if you don't mind me running my eyes over you and your... Hey, that's enough of that, and it's Mrs. Williams to you, she fired back, trying to emphasize her marital status with very little conviction. Kosowski gave Williams a look that said a thousand words, but he silently mouthed an extra one for a good measure. Really? 
Right, gang, he commanded. Let's get back into the spirit of things, shall we? We have to take real care out there, starting with your eye shields. You need to slide them down now, and do not, I repeat, do not take them off for any reason. Put his hand on Ed's shoulder. Did you hear that, Ed? Slide your eye shield. Don't remove it for any reason until we're back in the shuttle. Got it? Ed nodded. Kozowski turned his attention back to the rest of us. I don't care if your eyeball is falling out of your socket. You call either myself, Mrs. Williams, or Professor Scott, and if we need to remove your eye protection, we'll set up one of these. And he pulled out what looked like one of those silver blankets they put over marathon runners at the end of the race. This unfolds into a two-person tent, he explained, a mobile first aid unit. If you don't, and you just go ahead and scratch your itch or whatever, and he paused, looking around to get good eye contact with everyone in the shuttle, even Mrs. Williams, whom he got to after everyone else, you can kiss goodbye to your eyes. They'll be toasted in less than a second. Everyone looked at each other, recognizing the gravity of Kozowski's words. Okay, shields down now, he ordered. I gave Monica a final glance and brought down the reinforced glass eye protection from the top of my head until a clicking sound assured me that it was locked into position. Everything went dark. Scanning the room, Kozowski asked Williams and Scott to check if everyone's visors were down. Satisfied that they were all safely protected, he approached the large hatch and started turning the wheel. A couple of seconds later, after turning his head to double-check that nobody's visors were up, he pushed open the hatch. We were hit with a blast of intensely hot air, which I could feel even through my highly expensive fireproof suit, and the room lit up so brightly that a couple of my friends held their hands up to shield their faces. A shushing sound filled my hammock from the in integrated comms unit, and Kozowski's voice burst in over the top of it. Can everyone hear me? Thumbs up. I need to see eight sets of thumbs. And he followed up with a comms check to ensure he could hear each of us. Our eyes had adjusted to the light. Okay. When you step out there, it will seem even brighter, may, maybe even blinding for a few seconds. These visors are photosensitive, so they will darken to compensate. Let's go. Single file. Ed, you're straight after me, and he led us into the light. It felt as though we were stepping into the sun, but as Kosowski had promised, our reactive lenses adapted quickly. Over here came a voice from my left. The mixture of gravel and sand crunched beneath my boots as I slowly approached the others who were standing tall, their backs to me in silence. Protruding from the ground, some ten meters or so away from us, was a large metallic head. Its classical Roman features made its face easy to recognize, along with a halo of seven spikes sticking out from its forehead. Kosowski broke the silence. Libertas, the Roman goddess of liberty. This is all that remains of a statue built to honor her. Welcome to New York. That was the part one. Field trip, part two, Choosing Survival by Martin Morrison. Libertas, the Roman goddess of liberty. This is all that remains of a statue built to honor her. Welcome to New York, announced Mr. Kosowski with all the gravitas he could muster. Wow. So that's the Statue of Liberty, asked Christine Williams. I read about it, and I've seen old video clips, but I never had a handle on the size. Yes, well, that's the head, Mrs. Williams, Kosowski confirmed, and as you can see, it's around two stories high. Addressing the students, he asked, What do you make of her then? Holy, grasped Ed. Oh, so you're taking notice, Ed? She's 700 years old. It's a miracle that she's still here. Earth was once beautiful. Is it true that our ancestors caused this? 
Chuck N. Derrick, who spoke so rarely that when he did, everyone knew it was worth listening to. Kozowski went to say something, his expression changed. He tried again, paused, finally managed to utter a few words. Well, while I have um, a few opinions of my own, that question is one for the professor. John? Professor John Scott was a portly man in his 30s, with a face for radio. What he lacked in looks, he made up for with his titanic intellect. He published several books on the history of humankind and was considered to be one of the world's leading experts. History was his passion. Once Kosowski pressed the button, Scott was ready to go until instructed otherwise. This is a whodunit with many twists and turns and multiple suspects, he began with authority, but in the end it is difficult to find anyone culprit guilty in isolation. He paused for effect, checking that it had everyone's attention. By the mid-22nd century, global warming had escalated unprecedentedly and much faster than any climate model had predicted. It's fair to say that this acceleration was caused by human behavior, even if the warming itself was part of the cycle. A significant area of our planet ice melted, causing a massive rise in sea levels. Coastal cities around the world were submerged, including New York. With most of its infrastructure underwater, a large-scale evacuation plan, Project Phoenix, was launched to move New Yorkers to the Midwest. Derek dived in. Doesn't that seem like a strange name to you, Professor? Like, I mean, it sounds as though New Yorkers were being saved from the depths of the ocean rather than rising from the flames. Professor Scott smiled wryly and with a self-nod to acknowledge Derek's point and continued. In 2150, a series of volcanic eruptions along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge had a major effect on weather systems. It's fair to say that these eruptions were not down to anything we did. Some have called it force majeure, another attempt by Mother Earth to remove one of her most troublesome offspring. Either way, these eruptions, combined with the rapid melting of the polar ice caps, disrupted the Gulf Stream. The Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation crucial for whoa broke in Phil impulsively. The what? Professor Scott, always a prime example of what personified calm looks like, gave a spark-like response with only slightly more emotion. The Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation. Yes, that spat Phil, relieved that he had caught the professor in time. Okay, well, the Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation, the AMOC for short, moderated Earth's climate, particularly in the Atlantic region. Think of it as a heat pump. AMOC was seriously affected by the volcanoes and melting of ice caps. It was also, it was also significantly reduced rainfall in northeastern US, U.S. and Western Europe. We were all gripped by the story. Even Ed and Phil were nodding his head in time with the professor's pauses as if to show approval for the story. By 2200, the once green and pleasant eastern seaboard was an arid wasteland. New York, previously submerged, was nothing more than a desert with only remnants of its once grand skyline poking out from the sands. The professor paused again. So far, so good? Is that when the Great Scavenge began, I asked? Ah, indeed, this Great Scavenge. Close, but no cigar. That comes later, around a century later. As global resources became scarce, metal became the new gold. Humans were scavenging for what they could find, and statues such as this once great masterpiece paid the price. See the green coat on what's left of her? She's made of copper, highly valuable, and sought after by our ancestors. Nice of them to leave the head, at least, Ed piped up. Only because they had to, the professor stated forcefully. 
Huge sandstorms swept through the area, and as they became more severe, people had to abandon their mission. It was too dangerous to stay. Monica put up her hand. Yes, Monica. Are they the remnants you're talking about? And she pointed to some structures on the horizon. That's Manhattan. And what you're looking at are the top floors of what used to be some of the tallest buildings on Earth. They were so tall, we called them skyscrapers. He paused again, this time smiling like a magician with a new trick to show off. And that's where we're going next. Everyone in the shuttle. Less than two minutes later, we were looking through glass windows into the empty shells that had once been teeming with life and activity. Now stripped bare, our tutors led the way when we entered one of the buildings. After walking down what seemed like several hundred flights of stairs, relying on torches in the pitch dark, we got to the remains of an underground city. This was a shopping mall, the professor informed us, though he had read our minds. The ones we spend so much time in today were based on these. People would come here to buy things in window shop, look around and dream about what they liked to buy, and everything they needed from gyms to restaurants to cinemas were here. What was that? I blurted in a lowered voice. What was what? asked the professor. Didn't you hear that? Everybody hushed. Kosowski looked concerned. Yes, he's right. I can hear it. Everybody shush. Sounds like there are some dwellers here. It's best not to disturb them. We're leaving. No talking. Back in the shuttle, I asked why Kosowski had looked so concerned, almost frightened. I told you all it's a dangerous place. There are still pockets of civilization, if you can call it that, dotted around. There are so few people left that the odds of encountering them are very low. What do they live on, I asked. Rats, by the early 2200s, some rats were the size of small dogs. What do the rats live on? Human waste, their feces, and each other. They're cannibals? Yep, Kosowski agreed with a look of disgust on his face. So are some of the people, hence our sharp exit. While our conversation developed with quips about which of us would taste better, Derek sat pensively in the corner. Hey, Derek, I called, slightly louder to be heard over the others. What's on your mind? He was miles away, but my prod had sparked him into action. He looked over to the professor. Professor, I have a question. Everyone looked around. One look at his face was to know that he was deeply curious about something. When I look at what's left of Earth today, and I learn more about our past, I can understand why human beings were often so cruel, greedy, and selfish. It's a game of death out there. And it always was, long before the Romans pitted glad, glid gladiators, saved the professor. Yes, long before the gladiators fought to the death in the arena. You've got to do what you've got to do, right? Even if it means killing and eating your neighbor. If that means your family feeds, so be it. So what about our world? I don't get it. We can have whatever we want. Resources are unlimited. Space is unlimited. We have the power to create whatever paradise we want to live in. So why do we all have to compete? Why are some living in the most splendid luxury while others survive in hovels? It bugged me for a while now, sir, but seeing real suffering and hardship out there, um, I just had to ask. No one spoke for a few seconds. We all knew what he meant. Many of us had thought the same thing. Put aside the social injustice, we all knew people who were very ill, others who had died through sickness, and we still had our share of natural disasters. The professor took a deep breath. Good question, Eric. You're absolutely right to ask. I think we all see your point. In the last few centuries of civilization on this great planet, people argued about which political system could work better, capitalist, communist, socialist. It didn't matter who got into power or how much relative freedom people had under each regime. The outcomes were always the same. While some complained about greed and what they used to call the top 
much like our uber rich today. Others commented that those same individuals were happy to spend huge amounts of money to see celebrity entertainers perform live in stadiums while walking past a homeless without giving them so much as a glance. When our ancestors founded the New World, Eden Reformed, they hoped that a new land of plenty would bring an end to the greed, selfishness, and violence that had followed our species around since before we could speak. They were wrong. It took many years for the truth to hit home. They concluded that we are unable to function without adversity and competition. Without these things, we suffer even more of severe mental illness than those stressors create. Humans need to be challenged. We are driven by the need to fix problems, address imbalances, and fight. Yes, fight for survival. Stunned silence. We all looked at each other with grim facial expressions. So all our problems are not just caused by us, but created by us by design, I asked. No, not quite, the professor answered. No one is forced not to share, not to care, not to kill, or not to steal. We still make our own choices. We always had free will. The conditions we live in have been tweaked to ensure the optimal outcome. Balance. For every person acting horrendously, someone else shows kindness. Where some are driven to destroy, others are designing the greatest pieces of art. We have achieved equilibrium. The last tweaks were made a couple hundred years ago, and most experts are agreed we've got stability. If that status changes, adjustments will be made by the leaders of the day. It's not a perfect system, but it's the best we've got for now. The shuttle slowed down to a stop. As we stepped out of the vehicle into the clinic holding bay, with its tiled white walls and solid black floor, we were all mulling over what we learned. Would anything change? Would any of us live life differently knowing the truth? All the students were signed out and put to sleep, including me. But the security footage shows what happened when Kosowski and Scott were still awake in the dorm. The professor went through the final checks in his colleague's pod. ECG connection, check. Blood pressure measurement, check. Hindbrain connection, check. Once he was satisfied, he nodded to Kosowski, who said, Good work today. See you on the other side. The professor closed the hatch. No, he muttered, you won't. And he looked back towards the shuttle bay. So that's an interesting kind of futuristic story. Uh, certainly makes you think about things a little bit. My last story of the day is one I found this morning, actually. Um, it's called The Snake Lady's Pies. It's a short story. And it's from Twisted Tales to be Read Before Bed. The town of Scarborough was known for two things, and very little else. The best blueberry pies in three states, and the highest rate of missing children per capita. Quite fortuitously, for pie lovers, though not so fortuitous for the children of Scarborough, these two trademarks of the town were never identified as having any connection to one another. Pie lovers drove three states, small states, but states nonetheless, for the snake lady's pies. Blueberry with a little something extra, which bakers have been trying for years to replicate, thoroughly without any success. These noteworthy blueberry pies were baked by a fat old lady who rode about town with a snake on her shoulders. Were it not for the scrumptiousness of her pies, she might have found herself shunned by the rather unimaginative population of Scarborough, who liked their neighbors like they liked their morning oatmeal, appropriately bland. Old ladies on bicycles and snakes on shoulders were really too much personality for the collective Scarboroughian palate, which preferred the flavor be confined to its pies. And if the Scarborough chief of police had once momentarily been struck by an absurdly crazy notion after finding a friendship ring, 
like the one that missing Polly Sue had worn in his slice of pie, he had quickly dismissed it, which had everything to do with the preposterousness of the notion and nothing whatsoever to do with his particular fondness for the snake lady's blueberry pie. So that's all the stories I have for you this week. This last one is kind of a Halloween-ish, maybe not so much, more of a kind of make-you-think story here. Um, that's the reason I picked it. This particular writer has got a lot of other stories I will be giving to you guys in the future because they're all equally as good as that one. So I hope you enjoyed the show. And as Anna said, I, I try to give you a, a difference in things. Uh, no poetry this week, but you'll have some next week. Don't forget to re read the newsletter for this show. It's going to be available in Medium, Substack, and the blog section of my website, Crown Beyond. My parting song for this week is titled The Red is the Rose from the Chieftain's album and the Irish Evening from Belfast. Until next time, slantia.
I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shanaki, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Slongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.